I was noticing this week, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, so my, my children right now are 18 to 10, um, which means that we've been through several sets of dishes over the last decade or so. Um, so what I do typically is I will just buy an absurd amount of exactly the same thing, and then it lasts us for a couple of years. So um, I don't know what we're like on our fourth or fifth round of doing this. So we'll buy like, you know, like 24 of the bowl plate saucer settings, right? Um, thinking that that's gonna be good. Um, anyways, so we've done, that with, we've done that with dishes and we've done that with glasses, right? Drinking glasses. And we've done that with silverware. Now, I understand, as a parent, I understand where the dishes and the glasses went, right? Because I heard them all shatter on the floor over the last several years. I'm still perplexed as to where the silverware go. <laughs> if, if you have a solid answer for that, I would like you to come talk to me after the service. Silverware don't break, they just vanish. But this is what I've noticed. So. We've been through this several times. Every few years, we have to replenish our whole like dish supply. But what I've noticed, and maybe this is just at my house, uh, but if this is true at your house too, I would appreciate you just you know letting me know I'm not alone, is that as the population of dishes and silverware decreases down to the minimal amount, it's always the same ones that are left over. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not a small set of the newest ones, it's the same old ones that we've had for like 20 years that have survived. We bought, we bought all new silverware two years ago. I went to save you more. I, I literally, I just cleared the shelf and bought like as many of the same set as I could. We have silverware right now. We just don't have those silverware. I don't know where they went. The book of Judges, I told you last week, uh, I was gonna do a two-part introduction. The book of Judges is a downward spiral. And that's what's gonna happen, and you're gonna see through the next several weeks of stories in the book of Judges that we're gonna add some new stuff, and then it's gonna fall apart, and we're gonna be back to the exact same core. <clears throat> so do you remember the verse from last week? And everyone did was right in their own eyes, right? Everyone served their own vision of the truth as they could see it. And it led to moral decay, social collapse, uh, cultural calamity. Well, this morning, I want to look at another piece of that. And again, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you another sort of interpretive lens that the story provides us. So now remember, that the book of Judges is a time period. It's not a short time period, it's a long time period. In fact, uh, oddly enough, the, the time frame of the book of Judges is about the time frame of the history of our country. It's a similar time frame. And what we see in the book of Judges is um, it's not just a, a a spiral of defeat, but it's a spiral that leads downward, or downward, meaning 
that each sort of uh, time frame of, of defeat and decay is, is a little worse than the last time around, right? So what I want to do this morning is I want to um, unpack what that spiral looks like. And uh, what Judges does is it provides us sort of an overlapping analysis of what's happening socially is also what's happening individually, right? So we have some trends that happen socially that are on repeat in the book of Judges, but if we're honest about our own lives, we see those same things happening in our own lives individually. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of unpack uh, that dynamic, and I want you to try as best as you can to hold those both in your hands. In other words, what does this say about how I understand the world that I live in, right? In a time of of cultural decay, of moral decline. But what does it also say about me? What does this say about my own tendencies and my walk with the Lord, right? Uh, Self-understanding before the Lord is is a pathway to cultural understanding, leading us into our mission. So, you guys on board with that? Sound like a plan? Judges, 128. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So what we're going to get in the first two chapters of Judges, before we get into all the individual stories, is we're going to get some commentary. This is actually very rare in Scripture that the writer gives us some social commentary from like a 10,000-foot view. But here's the commentary. Number one, do you remember how God said, be careful, because if you join yourself to the people of the land, they're going to cause you problems down the road. So the first thing that Judges tells us after the people had come into the land of promise to claim everything that God had promised to them is that they did not eradicate the threat entirely to their future. They decided, uh, let's just um, bring them under our control. Judges 2, verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this thing that you have done? Therefore, I also said, then I will not drive them out from you. And they will become like thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare to you. So that's the second. Now, again, we're talking about a couple hundred years future. He says, let me explain to you what you're about to read. Let me give you some context for the stories that are coming up. They failed to drive out every threat 
They decided to allow some of the threats to remain, and so God agreed with them and said, if you want those threats to remain, I will allow them to remain. But it's going to be a problem. I told you all along that it would be a problem. Judges 2.21, I in turn will no longer drive out from them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not hand them over to Joshua. So I'm going to give you just three quick observations before we jump into the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. Just a couple of observations from those scriptures that I just read that are relevant to us. The first one is this. Some threats are more easily mastered than they are eliminated. That's a lesson here. Verse 28, chapter 1, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Some threats are more easily mastered than they are eliminated. In other words, God says, this is, this is a threat to your future experience of, of abundant life, and so you need to get rid of it. Do away with it. And we say, um, I'll tell you what, how about I commit now to doing a really good job of keeping it under control? And God says, I think you overestimate your capacity. There are no enemies of righteousness that can be successfully domesticated. You track with that? There are no enemies of righteousness that you can train well enough to keep under your control indefinitely. Yes, it would seem easier for you to just sort of get control of this thing, keep it under wraps, not let it ruin your life, rather than eliminating it entirely. Some threats are more easily mastered than they are eliminated. Number two, the full consequences of disobedience are rarely immediate. Chapter two, verse three, but they will become like thorns in your sides. This happens every year that I go moose hunting. I'm very careful. The whole time I'm out, I'm very careful. And then one time, it's like it's two in the afternoon. I'm not even hunting. I'm just going on a little walk. And I don't put my gloves on. And I get a rose bush thorn somewhere either on the back of my hand or on the front of my hand, which hurts initially. And then at like 11 o'clock p.m. that night, you can feel those little thorns just digging their way into your soul, right? Uh, later, you'll put your gloves on, and you can't find it, and then you'll put your gloves on, and you can feel the fibers of your glove working that invisible little thorn into the back of your hand. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Right? He 
says, here's the deal. You don't realize that allowing that to persist, that, that evil is going to just start digging, right? The full consequences are rarely immediate. And here's a third observation, and again, these are just preliminary observations from this passage. Your parents' shortcomings have a divine purpose in your life. I like that one. My kids say, Dad, that's not fair. And I say, yeah, God's going to use that in your life. Do you notice that it says in, in verse 23 of chapter 2, the Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out quickly, and he did not hand them over to Joshua. In other words, there was a group of threats that Joshua did not exceed in eliminating on behalf of his kids and grandkids. They were leftover threats. And yet God says, that was by my design. Now remember, he says, why? He answers the question, why? Why were there threats left over? In order to test Israel. So let me explain the cycle of judges. And then I want to talk about the test. What is the test? What is being tested in the book of Judges? So the cycle of the book of Judges is, un, is laid out in chapter 2. And here's the part where I want you to think both culturally and I want you to think individually. The first part of the cycle is always a, a time of peace and stability. Life is going well. Things are going well. I'm pretty, pretty happy with uh, the way that my life is tracking. The second stage of the cycle then is complacency followed by disobedience. In other words, things are going really well, I feel really good about things, and I become complacent. And then my complacency begins to take on a few little like hints of outright disobedience. The third stage of the cycle, defeat and hardship. So everything was going great, um, and I kind of stopped paying attention. I was kind of coasting. I was kind of letting some things slide, and now those things have come back to bite me, and now I'm suffering the consequences of those things. Stage four of the cycle. God, please. <laughs> much. I can't handle it. Can't handle what? The consequences of my own disobedience. Then the fifth stage of the cycle, God in his grace and mercy sends help, sends assistance, which leads to what? A time of peace and stability, which leads to complacency, disobedience. This is all laid out in Judges chapter 2. This is, this is the cultural spiral that's going to descend in the book of Judges. 
And yet I would suggest there's probably not a person here who on an individual level cannot relate to this. The first time I recognized this dynamic was actually in my marriage. And, and honestly, men in the room who are married, you can probably relate to this. If my wife was not complaining, I assumed it was because I was busy being the best husband in the world. And everything was great. Everything was fine. There were no problems. Did I believe that because I was proactively investing in the relationship? No. In fact, I'd, honestly, I didn't really know what proactive investment in a relationship even looked like. I was 19. And then uh, we would have, you know, a, a quiet moment together of conversation. And all of a sudden, Jenny confesses that she's not happy. What? What do you mean you're not happy? What could possibly be wrong? You live with me, and I'm basically amazing. Oh, you're really unhappy. Okay. And then I would begin to focus on what do I got to do, you know, what do I got to do to make it right? Let's get over this little bump. I don't know what's going on with her, but let's just patch it up, fix it up, and get on with our lives. Back to peace and stability. So here's my question, and this is what I want to unpack this morning. You guys see the cycle? Is that still up? Yeah. What's the test? Where is the test hidden? God said, I'm going to leave these people in the land. I'm going to leave these enemies. They're going to be a real threat. In fact, Joshua won't be able to drive them out because I have a purpose with these enemies in the land for the future generations. And that purpose is uh, there is a test going on. And that test is played out in the context of this cycle of decline. In order to test Israel, what specifically is being tested? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the answer to that from Judges 2, but then I want to carefully unpack it because this is one of those areas where our human nature solves the question in a way that is actually in the opposite direction of what God is trying to communicate. So your own nature is going to interfere with your thinking here. So I want you to just hold some things in suspense for a few minutes. In order to test Israel, verse 22, whether they will keep the way of the Lord and to walk in it. And we say, oh, okay, right. So it was to see if they would obey. Got it. Here's the deal. There is only ever one test going on. And this test is happening individually and it's happening culturally. The test is described in the greatest commandment. 
Matthew 22, and for you, for those of you who have been around, you've heard this before. He said to him, here's the greatest, this is Jesus speaking, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Paul later says all the commandments uh, fall under this one. And so when the author of Judges say that the test is to see whether or not you would walk in the ways of the Lord, the test is whether or not you will walk in obedience to the greatest commandment. But here's the deal. Can we put the cycle back up? The test is administered in every stage of the cycle of decline. If if you right now are in the stage of life is stellar, Things are going swimmingly for me. My wife likes me. My children treat me decently. We've got food on the table. And the Buccaneers are in the playoffs. Some of you here in this room are in that stage of the cycle. Everything's going great. And guess what? There is a test going on right now. And the test is, when everything's going fantastically, will God be your primary love? Or will you, in the context of things going well, take those blessings, take those gifts, become attached to them in a codependent way, and replace God. That's the test. Some of you right now are struggling with complacency, which seems to have strengthened the temptation to walk in disobedience. You find yourself more easily succumbing to temptations. The test is the same. When you're being tempted, will you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you love him with everything you are more than anything that is? Some of you, right now, are in the defeat part of the cycle. You're in defeat, and you're in pain. And I'll tell you what the test is. When you're in defeat, and when you're in pain, even pain and defeat brought about by your own stupidity, this is the test. Will you, in defeat... Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Will you, will you seek after him, long for him, and desire him even more than you desire the consequences of your uh, sin to be reduced? 
And then some of you are on the later stages of pain, where the pain has arrived at a threshold where you can't take it anymore. You finally have said, I'll do whatever it takes to make it stop. And you've cried out for help. The test in this period of crying out for help is will you love the Lord with everything that you are more than anything that there is? And then some of you, because of the good news, the gospel, are right now experiencing the God who rescues you, the God who reaches down and saves us, who delivers us in a profound way. And guess what? The test is the same. Will you, while being rescued, Make God your greatest love, the highest affection of your heart, the centralizing force of your life. What each stage of the cycle reveals is that the test was failed on the last stage. That's how we progress. If I don't love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength when everything's going swimmingly, I will always move into complacency and disobedience every single time. And in the midst of complacency and disobedience, if I do not at that point redirect my heart to loving God, I wind up in defeat. But the cycle has a hidden trick. I don't know if you've noticed, but God has some things up his sleeve most of the time. My motivation, if I'm being perfectly honest, oftentimes in the flesh, my human nature, Wherever I'm at in the cycle, as I end up in defeat and experience the consequences of my own failure, my primary motivation is not to replace these things that have taken my attention with an overwhelming love for God. My driving motivation to correct this cycle is to do whatever God requires to get God to bring me back to that place of peace and stability, because that's what I worship. That's my first love. And to the degree that God is required to achieve that, I'll include him as a necessary component. But even in the returning and the repentance, my true motive is revealed. I want to get back to carefree living. My tendencies and my relationship with God are transactional, and that's revealed in the way that I respond to this cycle. I haven't decided I want God more than anything. I want the pain to stop more than anything. And the religious here on this point are no less guilty than the immoral. One ignores God to get what I want, and the other uses God to get what I want. And both fail to want God.
What's fascinating to me is that this cycle in the book of Judges is repeated over and over and over and over. And the overall testimony is these people are not in love with God. But the rest of the testimony is that God deeply loves these people. How else could you explain him repeatedly responding to the cries for help to be delivered from the mess of their own creation while continuing to be unrepentant in their lack of love for him? God, if you could just show up long enough to fix this, that would be super helpful. And then we could get back to living the lives that we were living. And God says yes, again and again. David in Psalm 32, Psalm 32, verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Do you think God, this is David speaking, do you think God wants that kind of relationship with you? Put a steel bar in his mouth. You can get him to do anything. As long as as we fail the test, the cycle is not only doomed to repeat, each repetition of the cycle in our lives is a further decline into darkness. Because the fundamental issue has never been addressed. You cannot course correct your way to abundant life. God is abundant life. And the other hidden message in the book of Judges is that no amount of pain or suffering will fix that. We will be bludgeoned to death and never turn to the Lord with a loving heart. Oh, sure, no, we'll turn to him, believing he has the power to fix our situation and never address that in our heart of hearts, all of our actions are ultimately told the self-serving purpose of enlarging our own experience of peace and stability in our own lives. To believe, to believe that pain will fix the fundamental human disposition is exactly what the Pharisees believed in the time of Christ. You just got to cause enough damage, you can eventually... You just got to cause enough damage, and you can eventually get people to do what they're supposed to do. Here's the hope. And 
And we're going to, as we go through the book of Judges, we're going to like interlay this with the stories. But this is what you must keep in mind, and this is what uh, your natural mind will interfere with, because as we go through these stories, you're going to see stories of disobedience in a number of different forms, both culturally and individually. And if you tend towards legalism, you're going to focus on, oh, okay, now I know what I need to do. Here's the deal. When you learn to live a life of love for God, righteousness is always the natural byproduct of that life. Righteousness is the overflow, the outcome of love for God and his love for you. When that relationship is primary, the consequence is a life of obedience. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Obedience to the greatest commandment is not living your best life while avoiding being a terrible person. Obedience to the greatest commandment is a life guided and energized by love for God. It is the fundamental motivator in all areas of my life. How will this enhance my relationship with Jesus? Going all the way back to my example as an early husband. When I sought to protect an environment of peace and stability, regardless of how self-deceived I had to be to maintain it, I always ended up off course and in trouble. But as you can imagine, as the Lord worked in my heart and my life and, I, and enabled me to make some firm commitments that I want to do everything in my capacity and power to serve this woman that God has given me out of love, that had some positive consequences for our relationship. Obedience to the greatest commandment is a life guided and energized by love for God. It's what directs my actions and it's what motivates my actions. And every area of my life that I, that I, that I, I come across and become aware that it's not guided and energized by love for God, it's actually the energy that he gives me in that relationship that enables me to reshape that area of my life in obedience to him. Deuteronomy 6, I'm going to read this. I don't have it on the screen, so just listen as I go. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons. Speak of them when you sit in your house. When you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, 
You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand. They shall be as a front on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, cisterns which you did not carve, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Be careful. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him. God said on the front side, after I bring you into this abundance, let me warn you ahead of time, be careful because your hearts will quickly wander from relationship with me. There's a quote, maybe you've heard it before, G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. So what to do? You will continue to fail the test, regardless of where you're at in the cycle. You will continue to fail the test if your primary objective is to fix the problems. The way forward is to focus on Jesus, to know him, to love him. Because guess what? You cannot break the cycle, but he already has. And has set us free to be in loving relationship with him. And when that happens individually, here, and here, and here, and here, that becomes the impetus for social, cultural change, right? I'm gonna give away, here's a, here, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give away part of the story, spoiler alert. First Samuel, the beginning of the book, actually tells us the conclusion of the era of the judges. And do you know what the conclusion was of these few hundred years of moral decline? We need a better political system. That was the whole answer. And God says, I don't think politics is going to save you. You cannot break the cycle. We cannot break the cycle. But Jesus has broken 
the cycle when he defeated sin, gave us the gift of righteousness, not so that we could ignore righteousness, but so that we could walk in it more fully. And on that pathway of righteousness, never lose sight of this, that he is the prize, full stop. And when your heart begins to believe that, or grows in its belief of that, again, obedience overflows. The way forward is to focus on Jesus, to know him and to love him, to be known by him and loved by him, and to make him known. close with a hymn read a few lines this spotless robe the same appears in new creation's endless years no age can change its glorious hue the robe of Christ is ever new till we behold thee on thy throne Thee we boast, and in Thee alone. Our beauty this, our glorious dress. Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. We're going to spend a few minutes in worship. spend a few minutes in worship together. There's a few ways you can respond uh, during our worship. Um, communion is a way to connect with the Lord. It's a tangible uh, representation of our dependence on Him, His sacrifice. Uh, we will have a couple people over here. Uh, they would love to pray with you if you would like someone to pray with you this morning as you respond to the Lord. Um, you can give as part of your worship offering receptacles. It's an act between you and the Lord of letting go, being a blessing. Uh, but we're going to stand together and worship. And here's the deal. I want you personally to have a moment with the Lord as we worship him, that you would connect with him. And wherever you're at on that cycle, that, you, that he, by his spirit, would res rescue you from that natural tendency as a first order of business to try to fix everything, that you would look to him and know that he is aware of you. So let's meet with the Lord. Would you stand? Let's worship together. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I don't know about you, but I uh, quite often find myself desiring to be at the top of that will just want a life of with no trouble right everything's going fine everything's calm but that's not the greatest thing that we could be searching for so even since the days of Noah God has been doing something it's recorded in 
actually in Second uh, Chronicles 16:9 says, "The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him, fully committed to Him." What happens when when you're fully committed to the Lord? Zephaniah 3:17 says this. Says the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That that's mind blowing. That's far better than any calm I could have in here, right? This external world. Lord to rejoice over me when I put all of my trust, all of my faith, all of my hope in him, that's what we're shooting for. Over all else. And so take that with you as you as you leave here today and, and recall it. That the Lord actually is looking for us to put everything in him. We don't officially leave leave or end here till 1230. So if you want to stick around and help help clean up, um, help, help tear down. We also have uh, First Look, our kids ministry. Needs a little hand um, tearing down today. Um, just thank you for that. And if you, if you have trouble finding food or you need help, we actually want to partner with you in that. We have a gift for you. So please come find one of us, any one of, of us on the, on the team. We would love to, to hear you and get to know you where you're at and help you. Lord bless you and keep you as you go. Thanks. We'll see you next Sunday.